worship God as a result of it. But there's a second reason as well, is that the gospel is not just what has done and not what God has done in our lives. The gospel was always intended to be given away. And so there's a call on our lives to understand it and actually be able to communicate it with other people. Matter of fact, we kind of a theme, couple theme verses, 1 Peter 3.15. Look at how it reads. But in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. See, the writers of this book were ready to give the words of life. But being ready isn't reserved just for apostles and teachers and pastors or elders. This is about everyone, anyone who knew, knows Christ. And we need to give it away. And we need to be convinced of it. But, but are we convinced at times? And, and I think there's this hesitancy. And, but I want to put up another verse on the screen just to show you that there is power in the gospel. It, we, last week we looked at the issue of needing, salva or needing salvation and the issue of sin. Look at Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You see, even though we stand separated from God, that mankind stands apart from God, the gospel has the power to break through that and to reveal God to, into people's hearts. But we, last week we looked at the need for salvation and we began to just dig into the area of sin and there's a review on your notes there. I'm not going to cover that. Other just, just read those statements here. And, and we went through, these, went through the verses and these verses you can learn and use to, to share the gospel with other people. Letter A there, we have a sinful heredity. We're all born sinners. That's the way we are. We come into this world. Letter B, we have depraved natures. We are trapped in our own sinfulness. Letter C, we commit sinful deeds. You see the progression. And no one is exempt from that. And D, everyone has tried the route of righteousness, trying to do it on their own. And then letter E, we are legally condemned because of our sin and we are apart from God. I think someone came up and, and just realization that some of these scriptures that you learned maybe even a wanna, and I learned a bunch of them in Sunday school. But here would be a suggestion even for parents. Take these verses, write them out, and maybe grab some of them before supper time. And rather than talk about the school day and those activities that have gone on, how about just walking through the gospel with the kids, with your children? Now, maybe some of your kids know the gospel already, have embraced it, but they would give you great practice, frankly, to, to share to your kids and just in terms of kind of expounding these scriptures that we've been walking through. But, but if your kids don't know Christ, I understand by walking through them at a supper table, you're presenting the gospel to your children. Parents, oftentimes the gospel in equipping people really starts with you. The responsibility lies, and somewhere in the past, for whatever reason, I don't know, is that oftentimes the default is that the kids are supposed to learn this at church, and I go, no, this starts in the home. Parents are called to disciple their children, and one component is to give them the gospel, help them articulate the gospel even to other people. But we go into second area this morning, 
It's the number two for your notes there, if you're following along in the insert there. We want to be able to articulate the provision of salvation. In my Bible reading this week, I was in the book of Joshua, and they were crossing over the river, the Jordan River. And they came to that river, and God dried up the land. And after they got over, they they ended up putting 12 stones. I don't know if you remember the story of that. They put 12 stones as a reminder. And I don't have this on the screen, but let me just read you this reminder from Joshua as he wrote this. In the future, when your descendants ask their parents, what do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. These markers were pointing to the provision of God for that nation. And you think of even the good news that we talk about today. These really are markers, even the gospel. I think of the communion table when we have communion. That is a marker talking about the provision of God. Matter of fact, even baptism really in one sense is a marker as well. We have Easter coming up. We just got done with Christmas a few months ago. Those days are markers pointing to the great provision of God. And so today we want to walk through in a little bit more detail and talk about what is the provision of God and how we present it then to other people. So again, if you're taking notes, letter A, I started out this way. I said this, in spite of our sin... God's love moved him to respond with an intentional love toward a condemned world. You understand, in the provision, it starts with God moving toward this world. This world was created as an act or an extension of the overflow of God's love. But guess what? His movement back to us, even though we broke it off through Adam, his movement back to us was intentional. And even today, he sits and he still moves toward people. And yet the world hangs on, as we know. We look around us and we go, look at all the sin around us. And yet God is working. He's seeking the the lost to save them. But when you think of what verses can we share that starts out with this idea that God loves the world and he's seeking seeking people. One that you and I, maybe if you've grown up in a church, you know this. Look at John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God loved the world at creation. He loved the world after Adam and Eve sinned and walked away in rebellion. And he still loves the people of this world even though they shake their fist at him. The provision of salvation starts with the love of God. And God didn't recognize that God didn't just initiate toward us because of some moral obligation. I think we think that way sometimes. It wasn't some attitude that says, well, I suppose I'm going to teach them who's in control. 
No, that wasn't it at all. See, God doesn't have to prove himself that he's somehow superior to us and therefore he's going to deal with our sin. The issue, guys, is that he loves us and he's pursuing people. You know, when people ask the question, why didn't God start over? Have you, have you ever asked that question? Adam and Eve sinned and you go, why didn't he just get rid of creation, start over from scratch? Do you realize the answer to that is because he loves because he is love. And he chose to love the creation in spite of creation walking away. But let me give you another verse that you can use. Again, these are examples where you open your, your phone or your Bible with people or write them out and have them with you. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Powerful verses here. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out our desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But, but, God being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, were made alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. The challenge, I hear many preachers out there, they try to scare people into heaven. And thats I don't think that's the right approach. God is the one that he's initiating a love relationship with this world. And it's because of his mercy and compassion that he's put a plan in place. And that he shows his great love to this world. Now how does he do that? And you'll see the progression as we walk through the notes here. Letter B, how he did this first. He sent us a Savior. Because of his love, he said, I am going to send my son into this world. Let me show you scripture that you can use. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. One that maybe some of you have memorized. But when the fullness of time had come, just the right time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem Jesus came to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons so we can be sons and daughters of God. This was God's plan to send a son. It would fulfill the plan. And if we, Ephesians 1, if you look at this, you understand it started even before the creation of the world. Even before sin came into this world. He put a plan in motion and he would initiate and give his son and put him into a broken world. And this was plan A. And there was no plan B. This was it. But look at another one that you can use, Matthew one twenty one, The Christmas story. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For what? For he will save his people from their sins. God sent his son to be a savior. See, God knew 
that man could never work hard enough to restore that relationship with himself. And God knew that there was a break and that trying good wasn't enough. Trying to be good just didn't satisfy anything. But let me show you what it means to be the savior of a broken world. Let her see. To walk through this progression that Christ now is the substitute sacrifice. Last week we looked at the, the need for salvation because Adam sinned. That last point, the, there was a penalty. Death, separation, we're under condemnation. Matter of fact, I, I think the challenge for us, even when we read through the Old Testament, we see all of the story, but we miss the big point. That all of the Old Testament is pointing to the plan of God. And because the time wasn't quite right for the Savior to come, God revealed himself through a family, and it really started in one sense with Abraham. And God uses family to put into place even a sacrificial system that would cover the penalty of sin until the time was right. Where the perfect sacrifice would come and enter this world And that sacrifice, obviously, you know, is Jesus. And it was the complete payment for sin for all of those who embrace him as their Savior. Look at some verses here that you can use and talk to your children about. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. Jesus is the one that's taken the sin upon our himself, our sin. But you notice that Peter uses the word our because he's really talking about those that have embraced him already by faith here. But the penalty of sin, if you know Jesus, the penalty of sin was transferred over to Christ. And then we are declared righteous. And sin is no longer counted against us. And we're no longer held accountable for any sin that we've committed in the past, any sin that we're going to commit today, or even into the future, if we know Christ. It's been nailed on that cross on, within Christ's body. But look at the words that God revealed to a prophet in Isaiah chapter 53. Another powerful verse. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, our sins. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Have we ever stopped and pondered the monumental peace that God did there? The magnitude of that is the punishment that we deserved for every sin was upon him. Uh, the weight of hanging on that cross. 
Parents, you know, I think of this when we hold that baby, our children, for the first time, we go, we'd be willing to die for this child. And I think most of us here would be willing to die for our spouses. But let me ask you this question. Would you be willing to take the sin on of somebody really ugly in terms of sin, a rapist? And would we be willing to die for that person? And I go, ah, and yet Jesus has. Do you see the magnitude of what the sin coming upon the body of Jesus? He took our sin. But there's a reason for that. Letter D. The next progression there, he became a crucified curse. Now this is one that we don't often use in, in presenting the gospel, but let me just give you a couple pieces here. What, you say, what do you mean by this? Uh, I want to give you the verses and we'll add a couple more, but look at Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Now, now what's this curse thing about? Let me jump back a couple of verses in verses 10 and 11. Look how it reads. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. The law that was given to Moses became a curse on mankind. Why? No one could fulfill it. While the law was perfect and it was holy, and the truth is this, by trying to earn favor with God and trying to keep it, by, and by doing good, people aren't aware that they're not getting a blessing, they're getting a curse. We, we talked about the scale last week. These people that want to work for their salvation and do good works, and for them, they don't, they don't have a clue that trying to do good, and when they fail at one point, they're cursed. And yet they believe that working for salvation can be earned by merit. Without being in Christ, trying harder screams, fail, cursed, fail, cursed. And yet the world keeps believing that by trying to do good, they're going to earn some brownie points with God. No, without faith, Without submission to Christ, works counts zero. But see, as one embraces through faith, the curse is lifted, and the curse fell, and it was put on Christ. But let me look at. Uh, let me show you another verse. Colossians, Second uh, Colossians five twenty one. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see what the scriptures are teaching over and over again? That God's sending a son was the provision to deal with that sin. Well, let me 
help you go to the next step. Letter E. He's our only way. Now, I hope you've caught something that trying harder, I've been pushing it the last couple weeks, to earn a relationship with God. The scriptures dispel that. You can't try to be good and gain salvation. And yet the default setting when people are born, people grow up and even think that somehow that doing good should count in the great scale in the sky. And Jesus contradicts this scale. Look what John 14, 6 says. The words of Jesus. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's the words of Jesus. Look at another one you can use. Acts 4.12. You understand how you can just take the scriptures and let people read them and just walk that through and explain that. How just, you see how it fits. The gospel. But look at Acts 4.12. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no one. I came across a, a quote in studying this week. It was from Oprah. And she said this, One of the mistakes that human beings make is believing that there is only one way to live, she said. Instead, there are many paths to what you call God. But you, you understand when you begin to talk to people, when you claim there's only one way, people become offended. But why does the world detest this idea that Jesus is the only way? I don't, the answer is it's not a simple question. Well, let me just throw you a couple pieces here. First, the very nature of sin. I think we forget that, that the very core of sin is that we love autonomy. We love independence. We enjoy and delight in having the final say. Isn't that true? We enjoy ruling our world. Submission is not viewed as some really noble quality anymore. See, having to be dependent on someone else doesn't fit with our quest for independence. Deanna works with elderly people. And many, they just don't want to be dependent on their children. The independent living facility that they live in. And why is it that when we get older, I don't want to have to depend on my kids? You see, that really at the heart of it, it's pride. We just don't want to admit that. But submission is not viewed as some good quality. Uh, you think of our children even, as I was pondering this issue of, of autonomy, and how many kids really like to submit? Or, or maybe some of you had children that have had kids, and, and they grew up and said, maybe this was Tom's kids, I don't know. Oh, Dad, I love it when you give me boundaries and rules. <laughs> Is that right, Tom? <laughs> yeah. 
You know, I, I think of my kids. Oh, Dad, thank you for giving me a boundary and a rule. I just want to obey. You go, no. Do you understand the nature of sin? We don't like to follow the rules. We don't like to say this is the only way to God. But, but there's a second piece, I think, to this challenge as well of why people don't like it, that Jesus is the only way. And it really starts with the nature of the enemy, Satan, and his work. You understand that his work is about lies and deception. John 8.44 says he is the father of lies. And so he fosters lies about knowing God. And it fits perfectly within Satan's plan. I I think of Hinduism. It it gives this personal freedom again to choose how to work towards spiritual perfection, to, to move past the cycle of karmas. Islam teaches that there's only one God and, and, and through good deeds you can obtain it. If you just discipline with the right religious rituals. And that even giving one's life up ultimately is, you can guarantee that you're going to get into paradise. See, we have an enemy that wants to confuse and he does it by throwing lies to the world. And all too often, people believe the lies. That there's many paths to God. The scripture doesn't teach that at all. But look at the next progression here. Letter F. He's an all-powerful intercessor. Not only does he take our sins upon himself, but now he's an intercessor and he's an advocate for us. This is good news. Look at Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, he is able to save the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. See, approaching God on our own merit is just taken away. We no longer have to worry about tipping the scale. It's all about Jesus Because he is now our advocate. And look at the result, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, another verse you can use. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God who became man can actually relate to us. And do you notice some of those phrases that I underline? Sympathize with our weaknesses. He's been tempted as we have been tempted. And the exhortation, with confidence, confidence, we go and we can approach God. That would be a sermon by itself, I think, someday. Why? Because Jesus is our advocate. He's not passive. He didn't just save us and then, okay, it's done and over with. That he walks through eternity and he's now with his Father, 
and he's advocating on our behalf. And this isn't theoretical. And when we come to him, instead of condemnation, we now get mercy and grace and meeting he meets our needs. And do you realize here, as, as I was thinking, I go, here, the, the, the world wants a God that can tip, if they do enough good, it's going to tip the scales toward finding God. But, but you notice that contradiction in this sense with the world? They have to be confident in their own works. Okay, I think I've done it. I think I can't. I think I've done enough so that I've earned some merit with God for eternity. I've had to spend some time on a number of people's deathbeds. And some have been confident and some have not been. But see, when one puts their faith in Christ, when we get to the end of our lives, when we're, when we're on that bed and we know that we only have days or weeks to live, do we have confidence in what I've done, the good works that I've performed, or the bad things I've stayed away from, or are we confident in the work that God has done? Do you catch that difference there? And we need to point that out to people and say, you're confident in your good works. I'm confident in what God has done through his son Jesus. But there's even one more piece of good news, letter G. We've got to move on here. He is our overcoming power now. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 57. And when we get to the end of our life, we can read this verse, verse and we can go, Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, victory is not getting down to the end of my life and believing that I've done all I can to merit eternal life. Assuming that we are on the right side of the scale. But look at a verse, another verse here, Romans 8.37. No! In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So those weeks before death, when we get to the end of life, we can say, God worked. And he's going to raise me up to be with him for eternity, not based on any merit that I have done, because I've simply embraced him through faith. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Romans 8 is such a critical chapter in the Bible. Every time I read it, I, I kind of come away with more awe. A while back I was reading and I said Romans 8 is actually the pinnacle of all of Scripture, and I tend to agree with that. Because everything points to this Romans 8, or maybe to phrase it this way, we have this little phrase, we said there's two certain things in this world. What are they? Death and taxes, yeah. <laughs> okay, a tax season coming here. Okay, But this chapter, Romans 8, points to two certain works 
that will be forever in one who knows Christ in their life. And it's this, is that God is in control of salvation. God is the one that saves. This is the first certainty. But the second one is this, is that God is also the foundation of our sanctification, a changed life. That's Romans 8 as well. We are conquerors of sin because of love which he poured out through his son, Jesus. And then we come to even like, let me put on the screen to end here, Romans 8.28. This is about sanctification. And we know that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That the backdrop of life, God says, I'm in control and I'm changing you. I'm going to get you ready for the, way, for the wedding. You're, I'm in control of sanctification as well. Have you caught this breath of the provision of God? That the plan A was to send His Son because He loved us. And... Work after work, God put it in place that one day we can stand before him and we can say, thank you. We need to be able to communicate some of this stuff to people when they ask questions. We need to be able to open the scriptures and say, hey, would you just read this verse and what do you think that means? You see, why we're going through the gospel again, folks, is that people need Jesus. And here would be my challenge for you for the week, is wherever you work, wherever you're at this week, maybe it's your children, if you, when you walk into a grocery store, whatever it is, begin to say, God, what does it mean for me to open up my eyes and begin to pray for opportunities to give away words of life. Because that's what we're talking about. And today we covered the really good news. It's not about our righteousness. It's not about us trying harder. It's the good news of Jesus coming into this world. I want to pray, but I want to pause and... Our response to the gospel